Hold up. What was that? Boring. No flavor. That was as bad as those leftovers you ate all week. Kiki Palmer here. And it's time to say hello to something fresh and guilt free. Hello, Fresh. Jazz up dinner with pecan crusted chicken or garlic butter shrimp scampi. Now that's music to my mouth. Hello, Fresh. Let's get this dinner party started. Discover all the delicious possibilities at HelloFresh.com. Quality sleep is essential. That's why the Sleep Number Smart Bed is designed for your ever evolving sleep needs. Need a bed that's firmer or softer on either side? Helps you sleep at a comfortable temperature? Sleep Number Smart Beds let you individualize your comfort so you sleep better together. J.D. Power ranks Sleep Number number one in customer satisfaction with mattresses purchased in-store. And now, save 50% on the Sleep Number Limited Edition Smart Bed for a limited time. For J.D. Power 2023 award information, visit jdpower.com awards. Only at a Sleep Number store or sleepnumber.com. The New Statesman. Hello and welcome to the New Statesman podcast. I'm Rachel and today in this bonus episode I'm speaking to Jonathan Powell to discuss Northern Ireland and the Good Friday Agreement as we prepare to mark the 25th anniversary of the peace deal. Jonathan, thank you very much for joining us. Thank you. We can come to the Windsor framework a little bit later and the current situation in Northern Ireland. I first want to invite you to take a look back at the period in which you negotiated the Good Friday Agreement. and How do you view it now? Actually, I think it stood the test of time pretty well. It depends what one's expectations were. If you expected it to solve all of the problems in Northern Ireland, then you'd be mistaken. But what it has done is ended the war. And I think it's ended the war definitively. We're not going back to the troubles. We'll still have outbreaks of violence, as we had recently with dissident Republicans and with loyalists. We'll still have political crises as we have now in spades. We're going to have sectarianism for a while because that takes a generation to get rid of. But what it has done is it's removed the war and that allows political progress. It allows us to get away from being imprisoned in history as Northern Ireland was for so long. Do you think that Brexit has exposed any weaknesses in the Good Friday Agreement? Well, Brexit has created weaknesses in the Good Friday Agreement that weren't there before. The point of the Good Friday Agreement was try and remove the poison of identity from the politics in Northern Ireland. It was never going to solve the issue of a United Kingdom or a United Ireland. It was an agreement to disagree from that point of view. Part of the population wanted to remain in the United Kingdom, part wanted to join the United Ireland. What we did was try and remove that as an issue by, with the help of the border being so invisible, because we are both members of the EU, people could live in Northern Ireland and feel Irish, they could feel British, they could feel both. And the problem with Brexit is it's put that poison back in by reintroducing the border. Uh, it was always clear from the referendum on Brexit onwards when John Major and Tony Blair went to Northern Ireland to point this out in 2016 that if you leave the single market, you leave the customs union, you have to have a border somewhere. And if you put the border somewhere, you're going to infringe someone's rights and reopen the issue of identity. And that's what it's done. Are there any elements of the deal that you would today return to or amend in any way, or you look at after the, having gained the perspective of the intervening year? We didn't have foresight. So plenty of things have turned up that uh, we probably should have given more thought to. Things like, for example, a border poll. It's very vague on a border poll. Probably it should have been more detailed. I think the big issue is 
uh, power sharing. Now, power sharing was essential after the whole existence of Northern Ireland being dominated entirely by Protestants without the Catholic minority having a look in at all. There had to be power sharing to bring Catholics into power. But to have that forever is a problem. If you look at Bosnia, where a similar system of power sharing was put in place, it leads to corruption, it leads to the inability to throw the rascals out when there are elections because people are always in power. And that means people get very dissatisfied with the system. So at some stage in Northern Ireland, you're going to have to change that. You're going to have to move away from forced coalitions. And this is something the Alliance Party in the middle there between the unionists and nationalists points out all the time. But this is not the time to do it in the middle of a political crisis and to do it just when power sharing is now protecting the newly minority status of unionists rather than nationalists would be the wrong time to do it. So this is not time to do it, but it's something that will need to be considered in the medium to long term. I think we should maybe move on to the Windsor framework. So earlier this year, the Prime Minister completed the Windsor framework, which replaces the Northern Ireland protocol, removes the need for checks on goods flowing in between Great Britain and Northern Ireland, and Northern Ireland retains its its access to the single market. And there's a storm and break mechanism, which gives the Northern Ireland Assembly the power to veto some new EU legislation if it wants to. But there are some DUP politicians that are, remain opposed and refusing to get back to get back to power sharing in Northern Ireland to get Stormont back up and running. Do you think the Windsor framework therefore is a failure or do you think it's a success? What assessment do you make of this agreement? I think the Windsor framework was a success. A success that's not fully yet succeeded. But it was a success because we had no alternative uh, but to reach agreement with the EU. And the whole posturing of Boris Johnson with his pending legislation, with the outspoken comments about the EU, was completely pointless and completely counterproductive. I think Rishi Sunak was very wise to go for negotiations with the EU to find a way to remove the practical problems that come about as a result of the protocol. And I think Yostalo was very wise when he went to Northern Ireland to reintroduce bipartisanship to the policy on Northern Ireland to support Rishi Sunak and what he was doing, regardless of what his Brexiteer backbenchers wanted. And I think that bipartisanship, which Tony Blair introduced when he became leader of the Labour Party in supporting what John Major was doing, was the right approach in Northern Ireland, and I'm glad that's back. So I think it's the right thing to do. Now, in terms of the DUP, they've said they need time to think about this, time to consider it, and I think it is fair enough that they should have that. I I think probably they're coloured by the forthcoming May elections, the local elections. They don't want to find themselves running against Jim Allister and the TUV to their right, who would be attacking them for signing up to the Windsor Framework. They want to get through those elections. That makes sense politically. And then you have the marching season of June and July. And I can imagine they don't necessarily want to take a decision that would elaborate things and make things worse during that period. So I think it's uh, right they take time to consider it. But I do hope they're going to take the right decision at the end because they really have no alternative to the Windsor Framework when they come to think about it. It's a complete political cul-de-sac. There's no chance of any British government reopening this negotiation with the EU and no chance of the EU reopening it. The DUP can gain a bunch of goodies, as they always do. They can always come along with a goodie bag in these negotiations, as they did with Gordon Brown when he was trying to deal with the issue of policing. They will ask for another two billion for Northern Ireland. They'll ask for various bits of legislation. And the government will have to give them all of those. But I hope when they get to this issue in the summer, the DUP decide to go along with it, because otherwise they're going to be completely stuck. There'll be no way of putting Stormont back up again and it's slightly paradoxical because if you think about it, it's unionists who've always wanted Stormont. Stormont was created for the unionists in the 1920s. Now we have the situation of Republicans and nationalists demanding the Stormont come back and unionists refusing it. And you can only carry that on for so long before people start saying, well, if you don't want Stormont, let's look at the alternatives. And that would not be good for unionists and actually wouldn't be good for the situation in Northern Ireland. Do you think that the DUP have valid concerns when it comes to the Stormont break? 
Well, I think they've got val- valid concerns altogether about what happened when Boris Johnson shafted them by putting the border in the RFC. He pretended before that he didn't need a border at all. It could all be done by technology. He then barefacedly lied and said there would be no checks on things going backwards and forwards when he knew very well he'd signed up to something that did impose such checks. So the unions have got legitimate reasons to complain. The Stormont break is not quite as first advertised, but that's not too surprising because you have this problem in Northern Ireland. You give a veto to one side or give a veto to the other side. And that's not really what you want to try and do. Now, there is a question of consent because if you have Northern Ireland that is in the single market but has no say politically in what happens in the single market because that will be decided in Brussels and in Dublin, they've got a legitimate gripe about that and they need to be given a say and a way needs to be found to give all Northern Ireland parties a say in what happens to their future. That's going to be complicated to do, but a way needs to be found to do that. The Good Friday Agreement was a success because all parties moved to some extent towards a shared position. I think you've said it in the past that unionism can risk becoming reactive and not saying what it's against rather than what it's for. Is that the risk for the DUP here and how do you think they could move to a better position? It is paradoxical that actually in the negotiations, the unions won. They used to come and see Tony Blair, the EUP, after the negotiations, say, what's the Good Friday Agreement ever done for us? And he would say, well, it's given you the union, which is what you said you wanted. You put secrets in the name. You're a unionist. And he also gave them consent, which was the situation in Northern Ireland couldn't be changed without the consent of the people of Northern Ireland. So as so often in history, unionists managed to turn victory into a defeat. And Republicans, who'd actually lost out, uh, in many ways, were the ones who were able to claim victory because of the unionist attitude to it. So there's always been the danger in unions because it feels it's under siege, because they feel they're under threat. And I think that's the problem with the debate on the United Ireland, that we're not having an honest debate about United Ireland. It's left there as a sort of threat to unionism without being specific. But actually, anyone who wants a United Ireland has to answer some very difficult questions. If you had a referendum where you had a 52-48 split, like the uh, Brexit referendum, are you really going to force 800,000 reluctant unionists into a united Ireland against their wishes? I don't think you are. You're going to have to think very hard about how to do that. How are you going to protect their rights as a minority within a united Ireland? What are you going to do about Stormont? Does that stay there as a regional parliament? So there are all sorts of very difficult questions. I think the honest thing to do would be to have an honest debate about what a united Ireland actually means. The same actually applies to Scotland in terms of uh, an independent Scotland, where we don't ever debate the difficult questions. We just debate whether or not we're going to have a referendum. And I think that's what needs to happen in Ireland to demystify unification, make it less threatening and make it clear that it's not something that's going to happen overnight. That was going to be my next question, really. So with the exit of Nicola Sturgeon, the kind of the the threat of Scottish independence has subsided somewhat because the SNP kind of seems to be in, in decline and the independence movement is slightly quieter than it was. So how, would you, how do you assess the actual likelihood of there being a border poll? in Northern Ireland. But it's, it's interesting, these things interact. People, we always think about them separately, Scottish independence and the border mm-hmm. poll, they interact. Because if you had a referendum in one, it'd be quite hard to explain why you couldn't have a referendum in the other, if it was wanted, and if there was a majority in the opinion polls. I do think that these things go up and down. Brexit forced both the border poll and Scottish independence nearer. We find a way of trying to live with Brexit, and as the fortunes of the, in one case, the Republican parties, in the other case, the Scottish nationalists, decline, then it will go down. But I don't think it's going to go away. This is going to be a generational debate, which will go up and down over time. And quite a lot of it will depend on the attitude taken by the government in London. If the government acts in the way that Boris Johnson's did, with deliberate vandalism about the peace process in Northern Ireland, and in a completely defiant way to Scotland, then you're going to push this up the agenda. If you have a Labour government that's more sensible about these things, is trying to be more conciliatory and make a devolution work, then I think you act, it will be much less salient. 
After the break, we'll have more from Jonathan Powell. If you're subscribed to The New Statesman, you can get all our episodes ad-free on The New Statesman app. It's available for both iPhone and Android. Just search New Statesman on the app or Google Play Store. And we'll be back in a couple of minutes. If you enjoy The New Statesman podcast, then you'll love our daily politics newsletter, Morning Call. It's a quick, essential guide to the big political story each morning by me, Freddie Hayward and Rachel Weymouth, featuring original reporting from Westminster and beyond, our analysis of the latest political news and some recommendations of the best reads of the day. Sign up for free at the link in the podcast description. Hey, I'm Ryan Reynolds. Recently, I asked Mint Mobile's legal team if big wireless companies are allowed to raise prices due to inflation. They said yes. And then when I asked if raising prices technically violates those onerous two-year contracts, they said, what the f*** are you talking about, you insane Hollywood ass. So to recap, we're cutting the price of Mint Unlimited from $30 a month to just $15 a month. Give it a try at mintmobile.com slash switch. $45 up front for three months plus taxes and fees. Promote for new customers for limited time. Unlimited more than 40 gigabytes per month. Slows full terms at mintmobile.com. Okay, Jonathan, I wondered if we could move on to how Westminster introduced some reforms that could potentially help to preserve the the union. One of the ideas that's been put forward by Gordon Brown is, for for example, a a written constitution that would enshrine social rights. Kistama hasn't adopted that policy as yet, but may do before before the general election. Do you think it would be wise to do so? Do you think it would be in the union's interest? I'm no constitutional expert, so I'm not sure I'm the right person to ask, but I do think what Boris Johnson did uh, by abusing our unwritten constitution, by breaking the conventions and breaking the unwritten rules, did illustrate the problems that we have, which is why I think it is worth giving more thought, if not to a full written constitution, because that would be a huge exercise, at least to putting some of these rules in a form that can be justiciable and can't be just a matter of an opinion, as Boris Johnson tried to make them. Otherwise, we have no rules. So I think that makes sense. In terms of the union itself, I tend to think that the more you make things brittle, by writing them down, and the more you make them less able to adapt as time passes, I think that would probably be worse. Because the situation in Northern Ireland is going to change. It's going to be in both the single market and customs union of the European Union and in the United Kingdom market. That is a very unusual situation. It's quite hard to put that really firmly in written form. You can try and deal with the economic rules, but to try and deal with the constitutional rules would be more difficult. Interestingly, you now have the unionists pushing for a new version of the Act of Union or new ways of reinforcing the Act of Union. So that would fall into what Gordon Brown is suggesting. But actually, I think it would be quite tricky because, as the United States discovers quite often, our written constitution can be a very inflexible item. So we get to get the balance right between our tradition of a non-written constitution and demagogues like Boris Johnson who come in and try and abuse that constitution. In the case of the Union, particularly Northern Ireland, I'm not sure it is particularly helpful to try and write more of it down. That's an interesting perspective. If you believe polls, um, then Keir Starmer is more than likely to be our next prime minister. And obviously he has a lot of direct experience in Northern Ireland. Are you comforted by that? Is that something that kind of makes you think that the Good Friday Agreement will be in good hands? I do hope there will be a Labour government. It's time for a change, right? At least it should have doubt. I think that Keir Starmer actually genuinely has a love for Northern Ireland and a concern about it. And I think his speech that he made recently at Belfast was very striking because he made it very personal. On the whole, Kirsama doesn't do personal things much. He's a bit like Tony Blair didn't do God. And I think that actually it came out of him that he really had committed a bit of his life to Northern Ireland and he wanted to make sure that it worked. And I think that will be important in a prime minister. Because again, if you think about Boris Johnson, 
when you said that the border between Ireland, North and South was the same as the border between Camden and Islington, you really have to wonder if he's ever been to Northern Ireland or if he's just always thinks that by saying something funny, he's actually uh, advancing policy. So yes, having someone who cares about Northern Ireland, who's committed to making it work, I think will be quite important as a Prime Minister. And I wouldn't be doing my job if I didn't ask you about a very important appointment by Keir Starmer in Sue Gray. You were hired by Tony Blair when he was leader of the opposition to become his chief of staff. Did you know Sue Gray? Did, and what did you think when you heard about her appointment? I worked with Sue Gray very closely in government. She was in the cabinet office working on ethics issues even then in the Tony Blair era. And she's an extremely formidable civil servant, a very determinedly independent one. And I think her appointment is all round plus, actually for Keir Starmer and actually for the Civil Service and for the future Labour government, because she'll have very good thoughts about how to prepare for it. I think the fuss that's being made about her appointment is frankly puzzling. I was a a full-time civil servant. I was much more junior one than Sue Gray. I was not at the centre. I was at the embassy in Washington. But in terms of principle, me going from being a British diplomat on the 31st of December in 1994 to a full-time employee of the leader of the opposition on the 1st of January 1995 is exactly the same as Sue Gray's. So the attempts to impose conditions on her, I think, are quite misplaced. But I think she'll be absolutely a plus as chief of staff. And I think it does show that uh, Keir Starmer is serious about preparing for government. Do you, do you have any criticisms of the, the way in which she's been appointed at all? There's been some criticism, for example, that because they may have communicated earlier that there's some kind of this hint that she may have broken the rules. Is that your reading of the situation? No, it isn't. I believe that Keir Starmer has known Sue Gray for, for some period of time. And as far as I can see from what's been revealed in the media, there's nothing inappropriate in what she's done at all. I think this is, and given what Boris Johnson did to the independence of the civil service and the things that he did, both in appointing senior civil servants to certain places and messing around with it, I think there's quite rich in this Tory government to complain about that. No, I can't see anything inappropriate in that. And I do hope they're allowed to take up that job as soon as possible. I wonder if I could, we could just finish off by me asking you a couple of other foreign affairs questions, given your experience, if that's okay. First of all, the Ukraine war. You, you said some time ago that you believed that China could play some kind of role in, in helping to bring about some kind of peace agreement in future. Is, is that still your, still your view, given all of the hostility that we've seen from China in the intervening months? No, well, China has just proposed a peace plan, which was, of course, rejected by the United States, but actually President Zelensky has said he would be prepared to consider now, what the peace plan amounts to is just a set of principles, 10 principles to consider. But some of those principles are very relevant, territorial integrity of the state, which is quite hard to see how Putin is going to sign up for that, given what he's done to the territorial integrity of Ukraine, and then sovereignty of the state, not interfering in that, which, of course, again, Putin has done. So, no, I think the peace plan actually deserves some exploration. It is only a set of principles. It's not actually a peace plan at all. But some of the principles are perfectly sensible. I noticed that Putin seized on just one of them, which was uh, cooperative security, which is obviously one that suits him, but he didn't refer to the other ones. Now, the problem is, of course, that China is on one side. It can't be a neutral mediator in the case of Ukraine. But I think it can play an important role because China is the only country that's going to have successful leverage on Putin when it comes to making peace. It's already had some success with him in stopping outrageous nuclear threats. And it needs to have influence if we're ever going to get to a peaceful solution. So... China's intention may be to set itself up as a trade union leader of the Global South on this war, where the Global South is not in the same position as the West in terms of supporting Ukraine, where they're much more balanced. But I do think China will be important when we eventually manage to end this war by negotiations. And we know this war will end in negotiations, because the only other way would be for Ukraine to occupy Moscow, and that's not going to happen. 
And can I end by asking you all about Afghanistan and how it was pretty chaotic with withdrawal of our forces in the end. And obviously we've got quite a, quite a strong immigration policy. So some would say, given this period that has passed and given home, the Home Secretary's policies on, on, on small boats and how many people we may be excluding from safe and legal routes, how much damage do you think, do you think has been done? I think the collapse in Afghanistan of the West and the way it managed its withdrawal was not exactly our finest hour. It's notable that no one much in Washington wants to talk about the issue. And I do actually think it's important to maintain engagement with the Taliban to try and see if we can persuade them, influence them to move in the right sort of direction. You'll have seen today the announcement about women's staff not being able to work for the UN, which is really worrying because they won't be able to deliver the assistance, both health and other that they do. So I hope that's a position that will be reversed by the Taliban. So I think what we did in Afghanistan was a mistake, we being the West, because it was mainly an American decision, not a British one. And the way we in Britain handled the retreat was not best done by some elements, but it was extremely difficult. I'm not certainly not denigrating the individuals who worked on the evacuation, which was rather actually extraordinary effort. In terms of the immigration policy, I know that obviously the government's immigration policy is paradoxical to say the least, that they can't answer the question about what are the safe and legal routes for people to come. Obviously, people are coming by small boats because there aren't safe and legal routes. They're very unlikely to be able to stop the boats until they're providing those safe and legal routes, but they don't want to try and do that. Now, the immigration policy is frankly... And can I finally ask, will yourself and Tony Blair be having any celebration this Friday or over this weekend to mark your mark your achievement at all? And the achievement, really, <laughs> achievement of the parties in Northern Ireland. There is a big event in, in Belfast on the following Monday, Tuesday and Wednesday at Queen's University, in which both Clintons, both Hillary Clinton are coming to, George Mitchell's coming to, Bertie Hearn's going to, Tony Blair's going to, and I, my small part, will go to. So yeah, I think it is worth marking those 25 years because... There's a new generation in Northern Ireland, actually in the Ireland, in Republic Ireland too, who've really forgotten both what preceded the Good Friday Agreement in terms of the violence and the troubles, and forgotten the Good Friday Agreement itself. And it is worth reminding people of that, partly because there haven't been that many successful agreements, and partly because we don't want to repeat history in Northern Ireland if at all possible. That is well worth doing. I want to say thank you very much for your time. Thank you for joining us, Jonathan. Thank you. You've been listening to the New Statesman podcast with me, Rachel Wearmouth, and my guest, Jonathan Powell. We'll be back on Monday with a special episode featuring New Statesman political editors from across the decades. Follow us on your podcast app to make sure you get new episodes as soon as they're released. You can also watch video from this podcast on our YouTube channel. Just search YouTube for The New Statesman. We're produced by Adrian Bradley. Ever catch yourself eating the same flavorless dinner three days in a row? Dreaming of something better? Well, HelloFresh is your guilt-free dream come true, baby. It's me, Kiki Palmer. Let's wake up those taste buds with hot, juicy pecan-crusted chicken or garlic-butter shrimp scampi. Mm. Hello Fresh. Stop dreaming of all the delicious possibilities and dig in at HelloFresh.com. Let's get this dinner party started. 